Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast is as eagerly awaited as a Sue Gray drop. I'm Dorian Linsky. Ian Dunt is a columnist for I, and he's just launched his mysteriously titled newsletter, Ian Dunt's Week. <laughs> Hello, Ian. Um, yes, thank you. It's what, very imaginative. What delights uh, await? It's really uh, Ian Dunt talking about the week. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. Imagine, Let's yeah. move on. <laughs> uh, this is the latest uh, newsletter for the I, who are putting out for subscribers. Sort of, uh, I think it's about a newsletter every day. There's one on economics, on foreign affairs. Mine. They were like, "Do you want to do a newsletter with swearing in it?" Which obviously now focuses. My fuck area yes. of expertise, yes. yes. And to which my answer was indeed, fuck yes. Um, it's quite nice being able to swear in copy. Uh, I'm rather enjoying it. And I quite like, I, I used to have a newsletter of politics.co.uk, which was also on a Friday, mor- on a Friday morning. It's quite a nice time to Did write. you call it fun day? On a fun day. On morning. a fun day. <laughs> Friday is, is fun day. <laughs> no, no, this is coming from that fucking, oh God, what else I did with Minnie, all about the concept of fun. And I think she's done something terrible to my mind anyway you can sign up for it and, and i really hope that that you do it costs a little bit i think it's um an i subscriptions i think it's like four pounds a, a month i mean it's like a ridiculously small amount of money yes loath i am to promote you i would also recommend that <laughs> i noticed you didn't say you were signing up yourself but yes sure sure no i'll put it on the list <laughs> um in the government has just released a levelling up white paper this week um, after a report that the minister in charge, Michael Grove, thinks it's shit. Um, this is Johnson's flagship policy. Uh, what's the substance? What's in the paper that looks worthwhile? It's unlikely that there is much substance in there. And if there is, I haven't found it yet. It's only just sort of come out about an hour ago before we recorded. I have to tell you, and I'm not making this up, this is how it begins. It says... The earliest known permanent settlement to be classified as urban was Jericho 10,000 years ago. This is, this is fucking legit. This is actually in the paper. As social animals, humans have always congregated in groups. So it seems – this is actually in there. It seems as if – The Oxford English Dictionary defines levelling up as <laughs> – Exactly. First coined by Boris Johnson. In. So it seems a bit like a student's gone to a Wikipedia page to copy and paste so that he can hit his word count. And very much the rest of it reads like that. So it's, it's very – very broad. Bear in mind, we've been waiting since fucking 2019 to see anything about this policy area, right? You're ele- I mean, arguably, you could say 2016. I mean, Theresa May was talking in similar terms about bringing up the towns, etc. But certainly since 2019, we've seen absolutely fuck all from them over that period, except for a fairly sort of grisly use of local funds in order to blackmail people into voting Conservative and by-elections. Now we get it and it's like, oh no, still no details, still no money. This is all about redistributing money. And just these very broad categories. I mean, one of the categories that they're, that they're going for, I think there's 12 of them, was to increase well-being. Good. I mean, sounds another good. sounds fantastic. There's another says to get local transport connectivity to be significantly closer to the standards of London. And so what the fuck does that mean? Does that mean everybody gets a tube? You know, does that mean you're going to have the bus? Just there's from what we've seen so far and health warning on this, because I've only had sort of a, a small amount of time to flick through it so far. You know, it looks very, very broad and vague indeed. Isn't there? I saw that somebody had excerpted on Twitter a bit from the executive summary where it says Britain is a multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic with the with the world's greatest public broadcaster. Oh, wow. And I was like, but you, you don't like any of these things. <laughs> <laughs> Here are some other things we've tried to destroy. (laughs) Yeah, and they should have added, but not for long. (laughs) Roz Taylor is the editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. In COVID-19 news, uh, the government's U-turned on mandatory vaccinations for NHS staff just uh, shortly before it was due to be enforced. 
Critics worried it would mean the NHS losing thousands of staff, as indeed the care sector reportedly lost over 40,000 workers last year. Do you think this is primarily about staff concerns or has the scientific justification for uh, mandatory vaccination changed since it was first announced? Because we've had Omicron since then. Yeah, it would undoubtedly have been a very bad look to sack thousands and thousands of NHS workers. Numbers were particularly high in London. I think about six to 8,000 people would have had to be let go. So that wasn't a good look. But yeah, there is to an extent, her scientific justification for it, because we know that Omicron evades vaccination in a way that Delta didn't so much. I am living proof of the way that, at the moment, of way Omicron can evade vaccination. And that does change the calculus, because compulsory jabs for the NHS is about protecting other people, not yourself, okay? If you can catch it regardless of vaccination, then you can no longer say that having a jab is really protecting your patients. So that justification is taken away. And I doubt, to be honest, that there are many unvaxxed people left, especially working in the NHS, who haven't had COVID. So you can assume that most of them have some immunity by by now. The question is now, of course, whether the government will also do a U-turn on its ban on unvaccinated people in the care sector, where who did have to let go thousands and thousands of people and are suffering major staff shortages as a result. Esther McVeigh asked this just before PMQs and wanted to know whether they would now be able to re-employ the people they'd sacked, but there isn't any detail on that yet. Dorian, the Labour MP Rosie Duffield has said she's considering leaving the party over what she calls obsessive harassment by party members. She's been very outspoken on trans rights in the last few years. Why does she feel the leadership has let her down? Are they afraid of wading into a row that so many members have strong feelings about? I mean, they may well be. She is the the lightning rod for that. I suppose she is the the you know the the leading gender critical voice uh, in the PLP. I think that there should be a certain sort of consistency about harassment. You know, I don't think I think that one can address that issue without necessarily having to agree with her. I don't think it should be, because otherwise the implication is that if somebody has the wrong opinions, that they they can therefore be harassed. I think it would be best to to compare this to, say, the harassment of Luciana Berger, which was um, not really for opinions at all. It was the fact that she was Jewish and that I do think parties have a have a duty of care. And I don't know the details of this. I don't know if Duffield's complaint about the party will stand up. I don't know what the party has done about harassment. I don't know what more it could have done. But I do think that, you know, harassment cuts in all directions. People can be harassed for all kinds of uh, of opinions, um, often on both sides of, a, of an argument. And parties should be very aware of that and should be sort of protecting their, doing their best to protect their MPs. Now, whether there is also the possibility, of course, that this is actually just about this is just about this issue and that she feels personally just very uncomfortable in the party. And of course, on that, the party can't really do anything about it. It can't suddenly just decide that it's going to um, agree with her. So it's one of those things where it's just it's, it's quite a small news story at the moment. And there's so much that we don't know about it. Although West Treating recently has made what you might call more conciliatory noises on this issue than perhaps any other figure on the Labour on, on the Labour front bench has. Tories have been trying to get her to go over for a while now. 
Which is not... Apparently without much success, yeah. You, and you wouldn't expect them to have much success, but apparently they have been making the overtures. But apart from this one issue, I don't know what... No, exactly. It's not, like think... she's, it's not like she's Tory-leaning in other ways. No, no, if, if she leaves, she'll probably go independent. Our guest this week is a journalist and the author of three biographies, including Just Boris, A Tale of Blonde Ambition, about a man she has known for over 30 years. 30 happy years. <laughs> in a review from 2012, Guardian's Nicholas Lazard wrote, I wearily await his re-election to the mayoralty, and it's possible his career might never progress beyond City Hall. Oh, well. Um, Sonia Pernow, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Sonia, in the book, you invite people to imagine him on the steps of number 10. How far back did you think that this was actually a very real possibility? Almost, really, from the time that I met him in the early 90s. In fact, in 2002, I um, had previously invited people to imagine him on the steps of Downing Street because it, it seemed to me when I met him, we were both reporters for the Daily Telegraph in Brussels, reporting on the EU or the European communities it was then. And I had never met anyone like him. I've never met anyone like him since either. But, I mean, it wasn't about being a journalist. It wasn't about reporting the facts in front of us. In fact, for the first few weeks, I kept thinking, am I blind? I mean, I'm sure that didn't happen. I mean, I don't know quite. I mean, there must be something wrong with me because I just don't know how he got that story from that thing. It was only, you know, after a while that I realised it was all about an agenda, the agenda being the greater glorification of Boris Johnson, of course. And how he did that, he realised that pretty much everyone else was writing broadly sympathetic stuff about the EU. So the only way to make a splash was by writing virulent stuff against it. And he would shout at this poor yucca plant in his office for about 10 minutes so loud that I would have to put down the phone next door and cease com- you know, my conversation. I'm not making this up, by the way. In fact, he's admitted it. He'd shout so loudly, abuse, four-letter abuse at this yucca plant to work himself up into a frenzy so he could write one of these things because he didn't believe in any of it. I mean, he's actually, if anything, you know, quite a sort of a remainery European type, but that wasn't going to get him very far. So anyway, so this agenda, someone who was oh. so driven by the agenda of his own career, I thought, well, I've just never met anyone like it. Journalism's not going to be a big enough stage for him. He'll, he'll definitely go into politics because he, the, the thing that was so obvious was that he had to be number one. He had to be the first. He always had to win everything. Um, and of course, the, the most powerful, the biggest job in the country is to be prime minister. So I thought way back then, mm. that's what he's after. And everyone thought I was absurd and, and you know, didn't hesitate to tell me so. And the Yucca plant, of course, did vote for Remain in the 2016 oh, referendum. Oh, very definitely. Yeah. Yes, I interviewed it at length <laughs> afterwards. And that's what it said. Yeah. Johnson was uh, famously sacked on more than one occasion for lying, but he also managed to keep various other jobs while also lying. Do you think that had he been less indulged by certain employers that he might have changed his ways back in his journalism days? Or is that just who he is? Because this is a problem that people are still wrestling with now. Like, you, I'm not sure if you've seen those those Daily Express uh, front pages that always read like kind of rather sort of needy fan mail. It's like, now, Boris, it's time to change. <laughs> Come on, man, show us the, yeah. the real you. I mean, was was he or was he just sort of incorrigible? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? I mean, it, he has been constantly indulged all his life. There's nothing, by the way, that Boris Johnson has done in power that surprises me. Not one single thing. The only thing that consistently over the years has been, why do people go on believing him? Why do they go on indulging him? Why do they go on enabling him? I couldn't understand it. You know, for 10, 12 years, I gave interviews saying to people, why are you doing this? It's, he's, you know, he's a nightmare. It's all going to end very badly. And everyone said, oh, shut up, Sonia. And, you know, and... 
I didn't understand. I still don't understand why. But yes, there were a series of people in his life, and it's still going on today, who've just said, oh, well, you know, that's just Boris. But he's brilliant, though, isn't he? And actually, is he? You should change the subtitle in a, in a new edition. Just call it Just Boris, Who's Laughing Now? <laughs> well, you were right. I know, but I, do you know, I'd much rather have been wrong, you know, because I think he's done so much damage to the country, uh, quite apart from my sanity and a lot of other people's sanity, um, <laughs> that I, you know, I wish he'd suddenly, you know, like people used to say about Trump, oh, you know, but once he's in the White House, it'll be all fine and he'll kind of, you know, behave. And and um, I, I wish that it'd been like that with Johnson and wish that he'd mm. sort of become a decent prime minister, but oh God, you know. <laughs> Well, this week, the Sue Gray report is still not out, but a pretty damning update is. Boris Johnson is still clinging on as the Met Police collects evidence and MPs weigh in whether to send in their letters. And in the latest Savanta Comrades poll, Labour is 11 points ahead, with its first trifecta, which is voting intention, best PM and trusted on the economy, since Gordon Brown before the financial crisis. Mm. So don't say we never give you good news. I wish the listeners could see Dorian's face when he talks about the polls, by I love the way. The polls, man. <laughs> We've just spent we've just spent we've just spent years saying oh things are going very badly but, but, but let's have a laugh and so I just think it's important to point out the good bits. Uh, all in all, another magic week for the man who fucks up the parts that other politicians can't reach. <laughs> Plus, as diplomatic efforts to avert war in Ukraine continue, we look at the UK's financial ties to Putin's Russia, and as Parliament continues to debase itself, we ask who is the worst of all the backbenchers. Before we start some live news, we're returning to our spiritual home, the Leicester Square Theatre in London, on Wednesday the 9th of March at 7pm. I'll be there with Dorian, Ian and Minnie Rahman to hopefully celebrate consigning Boris Johnson to the dustbin of history. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. If you tried to buy some last week but couldn't get through to the page, the checkout issue's now been fixed. We'll also be visiting the wonderful world of Not London. Starting with Leeds City Varieties on Sunday 3rd of April, a 2pm matinee show with Naomi, Dorian, Ian and Alexandreou. And then on Wednesday 8th of June, it's on to the South Coast, the Old Market Theatre in Hove with me, Ian, Dorian and Alex. All tickets are on general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on all tickets, so search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast and sign up for VIP access. We'll see you there. First this week, on Monday morning, Sue Gray provided an update on her investigation into lockdown parties at Downing Street. It was 12 pages long, two of which were left intentionally blank. A work of art. (laughs) She said the parties were difficult to justify and highlight failures of leadership at number 10. Meanwhile, 12 of the alleged parties have reached the threshold for criminal investigation, with the Met receiving over 300 pictures from Downing Street parties as their investigation continues. Let's hope their hectic schedule of WhatsApp rape jokes doesn't slow them down. (laughs) Um, Ian... We start again with PMQs. How did that compare with the five-star Would Watch Again session on Monday? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm probably not quite straight to DVD. Well, not least because nothing does go straight to DVD and DVDs don't really exist anymore. But, um, you know, it was probably a three three out of five. Stummer, I thought quite sensibly, starting to move away from the Partygate stuff, but making sure that he peppers sort of every moment with it. So there was a point where you got... 
the now standard kind of method that Johnson deploys of just this kind of barrage of nonsense statistics and policies, most of which don't exist or are false once you start looking into them. It's probably a method you know quite well, Sonia. <laughs> I really am sorry for any psychological trauma you've experienced over this last period. Um, and sort of Simon's response to that was, well, you're going to have to do better than that when you're talking to the police. You know? And so you just think this is the, the way to do it. The rest of the time focused on cost of living, on, on tax rises um, and doing pretty well. I mean, he's still... It doesn't really matter. It's only PMQs and no one's going to base their vote on it. The, the thing I think that people don't quite get when they're watching it on telly is that you, all you can hear on the telly really is the mic of the person speaking. The, the voices off you can hear are just those picked up by that mic. When you're in that chamber, it's unbelievably fucking noisy and actually quite threatening. This great wall of people. It doesn't help that, you know, the, the seats are going up in front of you. It's a much smaller chamber in real life than it looks like on the TV. And getting up and, and maintaining your composure and your confidence and, you, and your aggression, really, in front of that wall of noise is very difficult. The Tories at the moment are presenting a wall of noise. So I, I think you can see a bit of hesitation in, in Starmer in the face of that noise. However, just because that wall of noise is there doesn't really change the underlying process within the parliamentary conservative party i mean even on these days when everyone's sort of saying look everything's you know sort of getting easier for johnson now things look much um better for him you're still seeing this drip 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 of mps confirming that they've sent in letters i mean today this is wednesday we had anthony magnell we had tobias elwood tobias elwood with quite a fucking damning statement on sky news citing the jimmy savile stuff specifically going this is just a well, slur this is abysmal well, can we can we and a few other mps we talk about that because that's uh, people who missed it somehow johnson falsely claimed that starmer had failed to investigate jimmy savile when he was dpp and starmer although dpp was not responsible for that particular investigation um starmer did accuse him of parroting fascist conspiracy theories about that correctly because that is what he is doing and then johnson sort of effectively repeated it without saying it and sort of saying, well, look, you've put apologies up for anything that went wrong during your tenure. And this kind of demonstrates it. a very similar message coming out from Harry Cole and The Sun, indicating that The Sun is now pretty much marching in lockstep on this one. It's not doing him a lot of good, as far as I can tell. I mean, it seems it's really upset the sort of laughably called sort of the One Nation Tories, such as they are, such as remain in the party. It was, like I said, cited already by at least one MP today for the reasons that they're putting in the letter. I don't know. You know, people come to their own conclusions. It's like trying to guess, you know, you're looking at a baboon in a zoo and going, does it have a sense of self? It's the same thing. You know, is Boris Johnson, did he do it just out of frustration, just throwing fucking shit all over the walls? Or does he do it because he's trying to replicate that 350 million on the back of a bus mm. tactic of let's just get the words Savile, Starmer, Savile, Starmer out there a bit? Whichever way you, you look at that as, as a tactic, it doesn't seem at the moment to be working. Can you help us out here with the common standards? Why can you lie about something like that, but as happened to Ian Blackford, get kicked out for calling someone a liar. This is a um, an arrangement that I would have been quite supportive of uh, not very long ago, and that I have to say is becoming very difficult to support. There are rules against you know calling someone a liar in the chamber. That's to maintain a sort of standard of debate, a civility, a dignity in, in the way that you treat other people. I rather like the idea that we don't do things that make it even more savage in the manner in which we talk to people in politics. There's also this principle that it's not really for the speaker to be sat there trying to point out lies and debate. 
partly because it's really fucking hard to spot mm-hmm. a lie rather than someone getting something wrong. It's quite unlikely that they're going to be able to keep up on every aspect of things in a way that they could form that judgment. For instance, Boris Johnson loves saying that we have uh, the highest rate of growth in the G7. That is not true for the last three months. It is true for the last 12 months. It's not true for the last uh, for over the period of the pandemic. The, the first and the third of those two instances were right at the bottom. It so happens that because we fell very harshly at the beginning, right. there was a period in which was I mean what's the speaker going to do you know is he going to be the one that calls on which of those interpretations it is they don't want to do that so I think there there are really strong arguments for both aspects of that where we've ended up is in this kind of unjustifiable place really where you get that Wednesday session we have Blackford basically being you know ejected for saying the truth about lies and Boris Johnson able to just lie at will in the chamber fascist lies let's call them what they are you know these are lies stripped from fascists from far-right websites pump them across without any kind of consequence whatsoever so even though you can defend both aspects it's getting really very difficult to defend the system as it's operating right now Ros this has become maybe a bigger story than I expected in terms of the backlash even within the Tory party do you think Johnson blundered here and miscalculated or was as Ian suggests trying for for something else just to kind of pump shit out there I think probably the latter I think it's entirely calculated it cuts through in the way that Johnson's big lies do what lying to this extent does is it makes him look audacious it proves every time he does it that he doesn't need to follow the standards everyone else does and that is actually unfortunately quite powerful for him. So he was able to say at P&Qs today that Keir Starmer apologised for failure to prosecute uh, Jimmy Savile when he was Director of Public Prosecutions. And now, in actual fact, of course, it never crossed Starmer's desk, but as the man in charge, he ultimately took responsibility. So that is how Johnson was able to accuse him of it. In Boris Johnson's world, you often have to apologise for things you don't feel in any way responsible for. So I imagine he enjoyed turning that round to use as a weapon against Starmer. We should remember that this is nonetheless a very peculiar thing to do because it is not something that has anything remotely to do with what they were discussing when he brought it up, Sue Gray's report. It is purely a character smear. It's just brought out of almost nowhere. But I fear, as I say, that it is quite effective. Well, the thing I was trying to, I was badly misquoting earlier was the Steve Bannon line about flooding the zone with shit mm. being the, uh, the, the, the strategy. As Ian mentioned, there's another two Tory MPs calling for a vote of no confidence now. I think it only brings the total up to 12, but Angela Richardson has quit Gove's office over party gate. What do you think the others are waiting for? Is it some sort of magic turnaround? Is it waiting to actually like any of the possible people that might succeed him? Because it hasn't stopped. You know, that kind of drip drip hasn't stopped, but nor is it moving very quickly. They're waiting for a point when their own disgust at Boris Johnson and their own complicity in his regime is overwhelming to them. The problem with that is that they've steadily chipped away at their own sense of decency over the past few years as they have endorsed him. They have essentially desensitised themselves. And when you do that, it becomes very, very hard to know where your moral compass, where your limits are. There are no boundaries to MPs' willingness to defend Johnson's, defend what would have been indefensible, because there really is no such thing as indefensible anymore, as we have seen over the party gate, ambushed by a cake, the kind of rubbish that we hear every single morning on the political interview programmes. 
it's off it's just moved off the scale of what previously would have been thought indefensible and as ian says parliament is actually ill-equipped now for that quite squalid reality We've talked before about the importance of visual evidence in scandals. Uh, most famously, I suppose, the, the Matt Hancock video. If any of these 300 pictures show Johnson at a party, do you think that would be the last straw, that there's something about yeah, Allegra Stratton being another example? No, no, I don't think it would. I mean, because he would have just say, this wasn't a party, this was a work event where I dropped in for five minutes to thank everyone who was working so hard and then I left again. You know, there would always be the get-out clause. I was struck this week by the argument of someone in a in a BBC Vox Pop they did who didn't mind the parties they said didn't mind about Johnson because they said that gatherings like that should never have been banned anyway. I mean never mind that Johnson was the man to ban them <laughs> and made it quite clear to to everyone else that they were illegal. With Johnson you see the kind of trumpian gift of a man who is managing to transform his failings into a source of strength because they bring him closer to the people and to a human fallibility that people can empathise with. And each time he shows that he can transgress these boundaries, as he did, we talked about earlier, with the Keir Starmer smear, the party fears and admires him a little bit more. Each time he does that, he gets a bit more powerful. We looking in think, well, he must be less powerful because he keeps lying and people must see through that. No, every time he does it and every time he defies those expectations of what norms are, he becomes a bit more powerful. But you know, you know who I really think of today, Matt Hancock. I mean, you know, when you look back on what the guy did, had an affair with someone he was working with, and broke social distancing rules. I mean, it all it all feels laughable now, doesn't it? And that that's how it wasn't even a case. Yeah, I know. That's how far we've moved now. We've moved from Matt Hancock being totally outrageous for breaking social distancing regulations to partying being fine, and that's what he's achieved. Sonia, Johnson's apparently not a big drinker himself, not that sociable. So why, relative to previous number 10s, has his become sort of party central? Um, I mean, that, that's very interesting. He, he's not particularly social and he's not, or he wasn't anyway, unless things have changed, a, a big drinker. So it would be ironic if he does go down over Partygate of all things. You know, you have to think back of how he was when he was editor of The Spectator. And he was very rarely there. He was sort of breezed in and out and things like, I, I know, 7-7 seven, seven would happen and he couldn't see why shouldn't we have a party and it was talked out of it eventually they were going to have their summer party that night and he thought that was perfectly fine to go ahead and it was eventually talked out of it by people refusing to come but he just thinks well why shouldn't I do whatever I want and therefore if I do it yeah the people around me should be able to do whatever they want too and if they're all happy because they're all you know having parties and drinking and doing whatever else they were doing at those parties then it will all be a much nicer thing for me and I won't have to worry about them and they'll be loyal to me and they won't stab me in the back when I don't actually do any work I mean I think really his his calculation is that and it, it completely reminds me of his days at, at the sex state uh, well there you go the sex state that's what we all used to call it back then <laughs> and that's absolutely you know, it's sort of imprinted in my head this is sex data in downing street that's what we have right um and that's the way he does things because 
nothing matters, nothing serious. I mean, just just think about the fact that he's been taking these top secret documents up to his flat, apparently, and leaving them and getting them covered in food and all the rest of it. That that's our security at stake there. Anyone, it seems, has a code to that flat these days. Nothing matters. Why should he be serious? Why should he, you know, take anything seriously? And so it's very, very revealing about him, I think. And on Monday, he looked perhaps unusually surly and petulant. And you've written that, that Johnson is can be intimidating and imposing behind closed doors. Do you think that side of him is beginning to poke through this kind of blithering scatterbrain image that has served him very well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think his image has changed quite quickly and quite dramatically, finally. You know, people used to say, well, I used to say, you know, he has this absolutely ferocious temper. And believe you me, you would not want to be on your own with him uh, in an office with, you know, no one else within shouting dif- distance. I mean, he, he he was frightening on a few occasions. And I think, yes, now you see, I mean, obviously, it's very different being in the cockpit of the House of Commons, but you see that narrowing of his eyes, you see that sort of jabbing of the finger, that aggression, that sort of, you know, the way he riles himself up like that. He is not a nice, cuddly teddy bear. He has this ferocious temper when he is under threat. And it is a loss of control, which I don't think is a good thing in a prime minister with access to the nuclear codes and all the rest of it. Uh, His own family have described him as unstable privately. And and I I think he is. He he doesn't have the self-control that that I think is required in that position. You said earlier that he'd had this ambition of becoming prime minister for a very long time. He's clearly not had the best time of it. His personal ratings are in the toilet. A lot of his party want him to go, even though if they won't pull the trigger. And he could surely find ways to be very wealthy after number 10. Why do you think he wants to hang on? Having achieved it, why stay? Yeah, I mean, it probably isn't much fun, is it, being Prime Minister through a pandemic and post-Brexit and everything kind of collapsing all around you. But it's better than the alternative for him because he has to be top dog. And not that he actually really wants to do the job, but nor does he want anyone else to do it either, because actually leaving, in a sense, is an admission of defeat. Sure, he might try and dress it, oh, you know, I'd lived that wonderful thing called Brexit. Look how we're all so prospering and and it's all so wonderful. But, you know, at the moment, that would be quite difficult to uh, sell, wouldn't it? And I also, you know, I wonder whether in the small morning, small hours of the morning, whether he's quite frightened about the afterwards, because, sure, Previously, he could have expected to make serious millions. But I wonder now whether by the time he does finally leave, his brand is going to be so kind of toxic that maybe some of those people who might have paid him a lot of money won't be quite so interested in associating themselves with him Mm. in the future. So I think, you know, there will be some fear about that. And and also, if you remember the Sasha Swire diaries that came out, whatever it was, about a year or so ago, I mean, there was this line in there where he... He said to her, I find it all quite frightening. I can't sleep at night or words to that effect. You know, I think he is frightened of being prime minister. He knows he's not up to the job. I think he's self-knowing enough to know that. And I think he's frightened about the future. And I think that that fear is partly why you see him so riled in the Commons. I mean, God knows what he's like behind closed doors. Fascinating. 
Ian, finally, uh, there are various plans to kind of uh, get the show back on the road, uh, possible ministerial reshuffle, a sort of quasi-return for Linton Crosby, the Mm. uh, alleged master strategist, and a blitz of post-Brexit regulation show what a wonderful idea it was. Um, (laughs) Are there substantial plans that we should look out for, you know, on, on the Brexit front. Is there anything that you think that would actually be quite bad news that would be introduced just as a political ploy at this stage? I mean, the, the indication seems to be that they're going to allow the repeal of European law through statutory instrument rather than a primary sort of act of parliament. And, you know, I'm sure that they'll come up with some pretty shoddy stuff. But the, the reality is these guys can do some pretty shoddy stuff without using statutory instruments on former European legislation. Most of the stuff that they're talking about seems to be around sort of deregulating financial services, sort of capital requirements for insurance firms, stock listings for tech companies. I, I don't approve of any of that. We know where deregulation of the financial sector sort of gets you and I would have rather stuck with the previous stuff. I don't see much there. It seems primarily to be a public relations exercise in this desperate attempt to create a purpose, really, for the government. Because what the fuck is it? You know, this is where the levelling up white paper is really. It's just a desperate attempt to find a narrative, to find a reason for any of them to be there. And I don't think they have any idea what it is. Well, so much, I think, in retrospect, so much was distorted by Brexit. So there was this huge purpose of, you know, get Brexit done. And that was the thing where that was what enabled him to, you know, uh, succeed replacing Mm. Theresa May. That was enabled him to win in 2019. And sort of people weren't then thinking about what happens next because we were all just thinking about Brexit all the time. And so that did seem to lead people to make assumptions about the government and about his own political skills based on actually a very short time frame dominated by one issue. And that the the sort of fiction of Brexit coming back to bite you in a way, right? Like, why was it that, that like I said earlier, that the levelling up thing really starts with Theresa May? Because there was this view that by listening to the voices of the towns and the left behinds and, you know, the cultural conservatives that, you know, as opposed to the metropolitan elite, that moral lesson carries with it this economic programme. Well, actually, the economic programme is really fucking hard to do. Okay, like you've had governments for decades trying to fix that economic program. How do you get it that, you know, you you break down the influence of London? And what that requires, in fact, is a massive fiscal transfer and decades, you know, when you see places like Spain and certainly places like Germany, decades upon decades of careful, laborious work. That's what it requires. When you're not in the world of fucking bullshit, you're in the world of actual policymaking. And policymaking is fucking hard. And they've at no point demonstrated that they have the intelligence or the conviction or the dedication in order to achieve it. We have some news. Uh, ah, Alex live Andre- news. Live news. Well, admittedly, 48 hours old for anyone listening to this. Yeah. But, you know. Live news from Alex Andreu who says that Gary Streeter MP has now submitted a letter. To yeah. the so it's 13. Committee. We 13 now? Lucky Ooh. 13. Okay. Um, so, yeah, maybe... maybe um, it's a yeah. trickle, not a torrent, though, isn't it? But it does and people will be removing them as well. With you, if we never fucking. We just we have no idea how many how many letters there. We, I, I don't think she'd be allowed to remove the letter. I think she'd be like an email once you send it, like a like a regrettable reply all email. <laughs> just to say, oh, now. It, it is it is remarkable that you could think that after what has happened in the last few weeks that you have changed your opinion about Boris Johnson being. Oh, yeah. A, yeah, Johnson's my man. Yeah, he's done so well. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was. Okay. I think you should be able to remove it only if you sneak into the office and find a way to physically remove it while eluding <laughs> Graham Brady who's stalking around with a big net
Next, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. We had a bumper crop this week. Um, please keep them coming. Eileen Duncan asks, do you think that the Conservative Party risks becoming like the Republican Party in America, post-truth, beholden to extremists, no longer accepting of the democratic process? Or is there a way back for them? Does the answer depend on whether or not Johnson survives the current crisis? So as I suppose the main Republican watcher here, um, I just want to kind of basically give some reasons why it's not the same and then ask other people to same why it might be. So I think there's some major factors. There's difference. One, Johnson, unlike Trump, doesn't attract the same kind of personal loyalty. Mm. There isn't the fear around him. There's a real climate of fear in the Republican Party that if you challenge Trump, you know, there would be a primary, you know, queuing on people outside your office or whatever. Clearly, from what we're seeing from this trickle of MPs coming out in public, they don't have to say they publicly, they've sent the letter in. Mm. There isn't that kind of fear and nor is there the loyalty. Two, British politics isn't anywhere near as polarised as, as America. You look at the polls. It's a much more volatile electorate. The polls in America just do not move like, like that. Three, it's not as paranoid and radicalised as America. We don't have something like Fox News driving it. And we've seen what's happened with GB News. You know, it's, it's a very different political culture. And finally, the, the particular problem the Republicans have is they, uh, with the exception, I think, 2004, they only won a majority of the popular vote once since 1988. So essentially, they rely on the Electoral College and gerrymandering and voter suppression and all kinds of things to achieve minority rule. Huh. Whereas the Tories, as we saw in 2019, you know, it's not then get an overall majority, but they can they can totally win by, you know, winning the popular vote. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to be as, you know, almost existentially anti-democratic in the same way that Republicans do. Um, so that, I suppose, is the, perhaps the rosier view. Fucking hell. Imagine being a right-wing party that can't even win under first-past-the-post, so you've got to gerrymander and rig elections. That's such a piss-poor record. But they're going for the voter ID. In a sense, that's a bit of um, you know vote-rigging, isn't it? I mean, was it two million mm -hmm. or something? That's mm -hmm. going to be quite hard. And also, cast your mind back to those debates on Brexit in Parliament and the female MPs. It's always mm -hmm. the women MPs, isn't it? Or you know, The ones that we were talking about earlier being harassed and I remember Paula Sheriff I think it was yeah, standing yeah. up and saying how can you say that you know when all these things are happening to us and he dismissed it Johnson dismissed it all as humbug I think the word was I mean Nikki Morgan hardly a sort of militant Remainer had bulletproof glass put in her house you know Anna Subri you know I think Fear at that point certainly was a factor. And I remember Anna yeah. Subri saying that at least one Tory MP had sort of changed sides, as it were, to back Johnson because they had been scared into it. So I wouldn't totally say that fear doesn't play a role here on a yeah. much lower level, I'm sure. But we have to be careful that we don't end up like that. But that's a good point because I wonder whether basically we were closer to that during Brexit when everything was much more feverish. And in America, it never stops. You know, these kind of culture war issues in particular and this polarisation just goes on and on and on and gets worse year after year after year. Whereas it felt like we had the sort of spike where things were more aggressive and there was more fear. But I just look at the fact that, like the simple fact that a Tory will, can stand up and go, this prime minister is awful and should go. And he's not scared to do that. Whereas in the Republican Party, there are so many people that clearly didn't like Trump and they just were too scared to say. We should also 
I mean, look, no matter what happens now, let's say, you know, he stays and everything shifts and the polls go back to a 10% Tory lead, even if all of that happens, something profoundly reassuring has happened here, which is that that leave remain split got shattered. Suddenly had lots of leave voters, we have leave constituencies voting for the Lib Dems. You know, that tribal division, that really what felt properly baked in and which we were told over and over and over again this is with us forever that was now. the new divide yeah. right mm. well it dissolved it dissolved that that identity split doesn't seem to have the purchase that we would have probably would have, that i probably would have said around this table that it did you know two three years ago and might continue to to have and so that on that alone we seem to be in a much healthier position than what we're seeing in the u.s There are similarities, undoubtedly, but there is always a way back. I mean, the Tory party has endless capacity for reinvention, but only if the electorate kick it out and give it a clear message about what it's doing. That is the only language the Tory party understands. You have to hurt it at the balance box before it will change. Uh, One of the reasons why I think, yes, it is more pessimistic situation in the US is because the Republican Party did have a kicking at the ballot box and they don't really seem capable of of, of changing. They are still considering running with Trump at the next presidential elections. But I don't think that the Conservative Party is in that place yet. I think if Joris Johnson lost an election, even loses the local elections in May for them, he would be gone permanently. Um, Say say that again, boss. I found that very (laughs) Permanent. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's like when people end a tweet with, end of. Next this week, the Russia-Ukraine situation remains dicey. Boris Johnson is in Kiev, as we record, and Liz Truss will be with him, if not for pesky Omicron. Johnson had to postpone a call with Putin to deal with the Grey report, but maybe that's for the best. Um, Truss has threatened major sanctions, but some in Washington believe that Britain's stance on Russia is being undermined by the flow of Russian money into the London property market and the city and indeed other institutions. And not just in Washington either. Nicola Sturgeon just wrote for The Guardian, we cannot be blind to the circumstances which have led to the current crisis. And that includes the situation where wealth with direct links to the Putin regime has been allowed to proliferate here in the UK, with often the scantest of regard paid to its provenance or to the influence it seeks to bring to bear on our society. Roz, this has been a live issue for a while. Um, been more than three years since Sergei Skripal was poisoned in Salisbury. A Foreign Affairs Committee report called Moscow Gold, which is also a great thriller, uh, claimed the use of London as a base for the corrupt assets of Kremlin-connected individuals is now clearly linked to a wider Russian strategy and has implications for our national security. Tom Tugendhat from the committee was one of the loudest voices there. And even further back in 2014, David Cameron promised action on money laundering. What's taken them so long? Is it just a lack of political will or is it more complicated? It is a lack of political will, but it's also more complicated. I mean, there's been no real prompts to act until we've had this standoff between Russia and Ukraine that seems to have concentrated everyone's minds. And I would point out that Sergei Skripal and the the poisoning in Salisbury, we didn't exactly get a lot of opposition from the opposition about an outrage about the poisoning then, as I recall, which didn't help. But this is, you know, why it's so remarkable that that Johnson is suddenly getting tough on Putin because he knows perfectly well just how embedded 
Russia is in London life in particular, in Britain, British life, but in London life especially. It was while he was mayor of London that London basically became a laundromat for Russian oligarchs. Uh, they're deeply embedded in, in football. You know, Russian owns the London Evening Standard, for goodness sake. They are everywhere. And this laissez-faire attitude has just prevailed. And there's a very telling bit in the report, Moscow Gold, which is very interesting reading. Uh, the title doesn't disappoint. So the, the committee asked, we repeat, they say they repeatedly asked the foreign secretary. Um, I'll give you two points for guessing who the foreign secretary was at the time uh, in 2018. What the FCO and the government more broadly could do to help stop the flow of corrupt money into the UK. He appeared to suggest, however, that there was no real role for government in this process. He said, this is not a country where we and the government can say, oi, we think this so-and-so deserves to have his or her collar felt. That is not how it works here. And, of course, the man saying that was Boris Johnson, and that is his line, that we we have a nice laissez-faire approach to people who come to this country and spend vast amounts of money in it, laundering their ill-gotten gains. And that has been the case until suddenly... Johnson spots an opportunity to do something, anything, on the world stage. Ian, what is happening with the economic crime bill um, that would address some of these problems? Yeah, this is a bill that's been set around for a while. It's been written for a while, and the government's done absolutely fucking nothing to push it ahead. It has two aspects to it, really. The first aspect is to turn a company's house from what is essentially a library into a statutory agency with investigatory powers to assess the information that it's being given. Um, And the second part of that is then transparency of the individuals buying up property through offshore shell Mm. companies. This is core to what the Kremlin does in London and the way that we have exposed ourselves to them completely. It works through services and it works through property. I mean, part of the laundering provision that we have is that we provide the services for money laundering through lawyers, through accountants and the like, in order to move this money usually stripped from national assets over there and privatized over here, according to Putin's network of cronies. The second part then is the property of just really not doing any pertinent checks at all on the origin of the money that is buying up property in Kensington that incidentally has the effect of pushing up property prices and worsening our housing crisis here. Mm. That is the original problem. The economic crime bill has been there for some time ready to be used. I mean, you may have noticed the minister resigned uh, on the 25th of January last week over the government's failure to put it forward for the next few weeks, next few months of parliament. And only the outrage of that cross-party outrage combined with Johnson's desperation to get out of Partygate, I think has pushed the government into maybe doing something in the next Queen's speech. But even by virtue of that, we're waiting until May. We'll be lucky to see that thing before the end of the year. The anti-corruption campaign of Bill Browder, uh, the man behind the Magnitsky Act, calls London the money laundering capital of the world. Mm-hmm. That's exactly one. what it is. We're number one. Um, <laughs> why is uh, the UK so appealing to Russian oligarchs, obviously it's a financial centre, it's a very agreeable sort of time zone. Um, so there's sort of some obvious English language, it's some obvious reasons there, but, but what others? Oh, I mean, because we just don't, because we've completely prostituted ourselves. Because we just don't check anything. I mean, we, we really have opened, with, and very consciously, and, you know, back at the fall of the Berlin Wall, the idea was, this is how you bring the Russians into the global rules-based system, and, you know, this they, they will uh, take on our standards. And that was fucking catastrophically and categorically false. But now, later, I mean, there's been warning, you know, you look at the foreign affairs 
committee a report you're pointing to that's four years old you know you look at the intelligence security committee that's two years old it's been very well documented the way that you use that network of oligarchs to establish yourself in london by virtue of this you know you like it because once you're established here the rule of law all these great western inventions that putin wants to destroy then protect you of the property that you have essentially laundered your money into established here they then push out the services to charities, to cultural institutions, to lawyers, to PR groups, to political donations, including two million to the Conservative Party since Boris Johnson became leader of it, in order to push a pro-Kremlin agenda, which frankly, looking at the evidence, has fucking worked. Because Downing Street hasn't given a fuck about what the Kremlin has been doing for years. If it cares about anything, it's about China. It doesn't even care about that very much. They've been completely hands-off. Those warnings and those demands to change the system have been coming not just from Washington, but from security experts and establishment figures here, completely unanswered over and over again. So that's why they do it, because we are completely exposed to it, completely vulnerable, and because it fucking worked. One of the excuses made for this, interestingly, is actually that it is all too complicated for the police to understand. And I'm not joking here. The report points out the National Crime Agency struggled to understand when people sat them down and accountants and lawyers sat them down and said, look, this is the mechanism by which the money is being laundered. They actually said, we don't get it. Um, we are struggling to understand this because it is really complicated and you need specialist people who have to be paid pretty well in order to do this work. Meanwhile, who benefits? You cause yourself a lot of grief with another member of the G7 and the public is minimally interested. That is the fundamental mm-hmm. problem. It's just too much yeah. hassle. And a decent country which was invested in caring about what was happening and, and how its financial system was being abused would do that. But we don't. Sonia, the obvious I mean, thing to notice is that there are a few Russian donors like Alexander Tomurko um, who give the Conservative Party rather a lot of money. Do you think that that fight there is a financial disincentive to be tough, or do you think that's too obvious a kind of quid pro quo sort of theory, and that actually you know the roots go much deeper throughout kind of? Well, I mean, they seem to go very deep. I remember when I was um, researching my last book, I met a former intelligence officer, British intelligence officer, and this was, I think, 2016. And I was very busy on my book, which was about intelligence during the Second World War at the time, so I didn't take this forward, and I wish I had done. He said, well, what you should be looking at, Sonia, is Russian links to the Conservative Party, because we've all been freaking about it for years. It seems to me that these roots do go down very deep. But I um, I was looking at a, you know, a piece, and I think it was in the mirror the other day, was it a quarter of the cabinet have donations from people with Russian links or something like that? Tomeka that you mentioned earlier has described Boris Johnson as a close personal friend. I mean, it is absolutely everywhere, this sort of Russian infiltration. And I think it would take real guts to do something about it. And that's just absolutely not going to happen because it's too much of an advantage to carry on with the way things are. And it would, again, would go completely against what Johnson represents, which is freewheeling, free for all, let's all have a party. Well, thinking of what's going on um, with Ukraine, Johnson's hero, Churchill, is uh, remember for his foreign policy most of all, but Johnson was a famously terrible uh, foreign secretary. Do you think he has a vision uh, of the global of a global order, does he have a kind of? Is there a Johnsonite foreign policy? Johnson, a vision of. <laughs> it's a tr- it's a trick question. Sometimes I throw these against. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm completely baffled now. Can't compute that one. I mean, I'm... 
Did you see that uh, documentary about him as foreign secretary, the, the faces of those poor civil servants trying to deal with him? He has no vision about that. He's got no vision about anything except for how can he possibly survive and win the game? The whole thing is a game to him. It's all about winning the game against the opposition or people in his own benches. He's not in the slightest bit. In, I mean, that whole dubious, ridiculous trip over to Ukraine. What a joke. I mean, what was all that about? Absolutely nothing. It was just a distraction as ever. So he's got no real sort of sense then. I mean, you think he has no strong feelings about Russia or indeed, you know, the world order or any countries? No. Uh, No. I mean, I, I... I really don't. I mean, he has some strong feelings about countries because they're nice places to go on holiday in. But I think that's probably about it. One government briefing, apparently, um, a while back when they were looking into doing sanctions, curbs on money laundering, said, look, it's just too late to disentangle London from Russian money. Oh, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, all you can do is limit what happens now. But once something's in property... You know, and you trade. You know what happens when you sell that Kensington flat? Well, you don't. You know, I mean, yeah, because you can't go around just taking property away from people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard, and also, you know, it becomes this is the whole thing of what laundering is, right? Once the money becomes legitimate, you're kind of fucked. You, you have to. So, to a certain extent, you know, what's what's done is done to a certain extent. You know, I would go further than what's being suggested now by the foreign secretary of saying, well, we want individualizable sanctions and say, well, no, we need the ability to freeze and seize and return assets. That is one of the things that can be done. But ultimately, that core damage is now done. I mean, on a systems level, you can't go back in time. What you can do is prevent it from happening in the future, beefing up your regulators, being aggressive about taking action now. Internationally, there has been some success occasionally in seizing the assets of corrupt regimes. Equatorial Guinea was a recent example. The dictator there basically laundered a huge amount of money in Paris and various flats and cars and uh, even some sort of Michael Jackson memorabilia, bizarrely. It was confiscated by the French state. And the idea is now that it's being channeled back into Equatorial Guinea for the good of the people there. But you can really only do that with uh, when, when the offender was very explicitly linked with the regime. And one of the things about Russia is that almost everybody here has links with Putin, but they are extremely, extremely opaque. So that makes it much more difficult to do. And of course, you need you know functioning sense of morals and duty and, and international collaboration, which we don't have. Well, finally, while I was researching this segment, I found one person going, um, this won't hurt Putin. Why does he care if some um, oligarchs that he doesn't like, you know, lose their money? And then uh, another source going, Putin would be devastated because a lot of this money is actually his. <laughs> so, there, you know, like you, you talk about opaque where you, you, it's very hard to sort of say, OK, what exactly is the relationship between a lot of these major figures and Putin. No, I mean, just, I mean, it's it's very well established by security experts over and and you know very well documented in committee report after committee report that this is how Putin functions through a network of supportive oligarchs. You know, and that's not it's not the same as, for instance, what we see in Hungary by by the oligarchs there, where it's much more direct. Yeah, it's yeah. an ecosystem, but it, but it's very well established that this is this is the operating system for how they go. But also, how the fuck but do we damage? Expli- they're not explicit, I suppose, in the terms of of the sanctions, where it's like, okay, we're going to sanction people who are who are explicitly supportive of Putin. They're all quite clever about not just going, let's invade Ukraine. The other question, I suppose, is just also like, how do we hurt them, right? Because we're not going to hurt them by, let's be realistic, we're not going to put troops in Ukraine. We're not going to do it. Okay, no one's going to do it. 
So if that's not the case, this country has to ask itself, how do we hurt them? And I think, you know, sending another fucking 900 people, to, troops to Estonia, where he isn't, is not a major threat to anyone. The two things you can do is you can send arms, anti-tank equipment to Ukraine. You can help the Ukrainian resistance against any possible Russian invasion. And the second one is you can hit him in the wallet. Hit them in the fucking wallet. Because that, at least, is something that we can do. It's almost the end of the show, so it's time to look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Sonia, you are our guest. Well, it's actually sort of slightly linked, and it? it did get a little traction, but I think it's actually much more important. And going back to that, that idea that Johnson has been going up into his flat with his top secret documents and leaving them around and spilling food mm. over them and things. So this is all part of the same rules aren't, don't apply to me thing as the Partygate. So Partygate is merely the tip of the iceberg of all the other things that I'm sure he's doing that are, you know, damaging to all of us. And this would seem to be an example of that. And this is our security that we're talking about, that we can't trust the prime minister even to just make sure that the secret documents that he has shown are kept safely. We hear that Sue Gray has put all her material in some sort of safe somewhere and wasn't going to hand it over to Downing Street. Well, I don't blame you, Sue. I think I feel (laughs) exactly the same way. And, you know, I remember when Johnson was um, made foreign secretary and there was a lot of talk about, you know, he wasn't going to have direct control over MI6, which, of course, is always normally within the foreign office. You were never quite sure whether that was true, but certainly he wasn't allowed to chair COBRA meetings under Theresa May because she didn't trust him. You know, there's so much lack of trust of this man, who is our prime minister of a country with nuclear codes, to do the most basic things that you would expect from someone in that position. And I think Partygate just kind of lifts the curtain a bit as to the fact that he doesn't give a toss. (laughs) Um, Roz? I want to talk about a Supreme Court ruling that we had this week. Um, Sorry, that sounds a dull way of starting, but it's actually, it's, it's very consequential. Basically, they were asked in a test case about a child whose mother was a single parent on benefits, and she couldn't afford the fee to register her child as a British citizen. Um, the child been living in Britain for a decade. That didn't or give the child the right to British citizenship. You may or may not be surprised to learn. The cost of doing so is £1,012 to register a child. And obviously, for a single parent on benefits, that's just something that's not possible. The actual cost, by the way, in terms of processing and so on, is estimated to be about 372. But the Home Office just keeps on bumping up the fees to cover uh, many of its other costs. It's very sad that the Supreme Court has decided that it is the government's right to charge basically as much as it wants for someone to apply for citizenship in this way. And it's a sign of a scared, insecure country that it can't give naturalised children citizenship without demanding these huge sums that people can't afford. It's yet another hostile environment story. Ian? I haven't picked a very good one because everybody already knows this one, so it's not really under the radar at all. But I was in a rush, so fuck you. The police conduct report into the culture at Charing Cross police station, um, which you alluded to earlier, Hmm. just policemen just sort of firing off constant rape jokes and and just a completely corroded moral culture there. I mean, you can't help but look at it right now and just 
like an almost weekly drip feed of stories about the Met, which it's relentless. I mean, you look at the way what's happened over the last few weeks, not investigating the parties, then jumping in in the way that derailed the investigation, presumably because they thought, well, we're going to come out of this looking like complete twats, right? Mm. Because, because of the severity of the stuff that, that Sue Gray's reporting. You step back from that and think about, I mean, there was a story last week by um, a female academic who had stepped in to give a legal advice card to a 15-year-old who was being stopped and searched. And the police took her to a police station and held her down on the floor and cut her clothes off as part of the search. This clearly purposeful act of humiliation while insulting her at the same time. You think about the policing of that Sarah Everard vigil mm-hmm. afterwards. It's like, this is a police force. That has fundamental problems. There's no. How could anyone make the argument that this place doesn't need proper root and branch reform? And I don't hear it from the Tories. Obviously, I don't hear it from Labour either. And yet, it seems like a completely inescapable to conclusion to me at this point. Quite extraordinary, uh, Cressida Dick's career. The number of scandals that she survived. She's clearly completely appalling. But this at this stage, it can't just be about her. You know, at this point, you're looking at an institution that looks like it has proper fundamental problems. And no one seems to be prepared to say the reality of that in mainstream politics. And worse, this is the organisation, along with the other police forces, that is going to have the job of deciding whether or not you are allowed to protest or not. And it's going to be hand enormous yes. powers oh, for, through the policing yeah. bill to decide an enormous discretion. It's extraordinary. Whew. That was a fun bunch of under radar, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, things are actually quite good for our side right now. So I don't know why we've come in and just done this apocalyptic like, world's on fire show. So we apologise for that. The murkiest shit. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's not... 11 points. 11 point lead. There we go. Let's, let's remember that. And that is the show. Thank you to Roz. Thank you. Ian. Oh, thank you very much. And our guest, Sonia Purnell. Thank you. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for patrons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Best wishes from me to Aaron Taylor, Toby McDonald, Gavin O'Shea, Kevin Dunford, Lee De La Haye, Viren Sharma and Michael O'Neill. And it's a big thank you from me to uh, John Roche, Charles Newman, Mark Argent, Claire White, Christian Myers, James and Douglas Philp. And it's best wishes for me to Andy Kisaragi, Paul Lemon, Matthew Broom, Thomas Bennett, Jill McFarthing, Paul Jones and Stig Urchersvarg. Thank you so much and see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky. Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. In the extra bit this week, during his statement to the Commons on Monday, Keir Starmer appealed to the conscience of Tory MPs who were considering letters of no confidence to the 1922 committee. Let's see how his conscience hunt goes. They've had plenty of airtime recently, so this week we are asking, who is the worst backbencher in the Commons? Ian, why is it Christopher Chope? <laughs> uh-huh. Very good question. I'm not going to, but I, I'm not going to go with Christopher Chope, actually. I'm going to go with a kind of hipster, obscure reference uh, to Lee Anderson, who I feel doesn't get 
enough hate and vitriol in our circles of friends. I'm not suggesting for a moment you directed at him on Twitter. Please don't do that. Really quite a obscenely, monstrously stupid man. So you may have come across him the first time with the Michael Crick moment where during the election, where there's a video of him going up to his mate in the house going, don't make out like you know me. Just act like you've never seen me before. No way I am. That's basically... Oh, yes. Yeah, that's the guy. That's pretty much the standards he's lived up to uh, as an MP. He... I mean, one of his greatest interventions was suggesting work camps for people in council houses. And in fact, I can, I've got a quote from, from what he said there. It's quite extraordinary. Let's have the tenants in the field picking potatoes or any other seasonal vegetable back in the tent, cold shower, <laughs> lights out, six o'clock, same again the next day. Now, I've read that quote many times, but one of my favorite bits about it is the detail of picking potatoes or any other seasonal vegetable. You'll notice that he's not picky on the exact vegetable that these people have to pick in their prison camps that he's put them in. Um, he's also, I mean, he talked about cultural Marxism in the Telegraph. He, you may remember he refused to watch or support England because they took the knee only to sit there looking like an absolute fucking twat when they started doing very, very well indeed. But my favourite moment for him was during the policing bill, there it is again, a debate, where, you know, you are hoping, oh, is there any chance the Tory backbenchers are going to do something to scrutinise, you know, this legislation and pick some holes? Maybe we've got to hope. He stood up and he said this. Now then. Now then. Now then. Now, now, now then. then. <laughs> is that? No. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, which is out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.